Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. Today, we'll be talking to Bina Shaw about her story, Weeds and Flowers, which appeared in last spring's issue of The Common. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Bina Shaw is a Karachi-based author of five novels and two collections of short stories, including a feminist dystopia called Before She Sleeps, published in 2018. Her work has appeared in Granta, the New York Times, and Pakistan's biggest English-language newspaper, Dawn, as well as other international newspapers and journals. Bina Shah, thanks for joining us. Hi, Emily. Thank you for having me. Since we're not face-to-face today, could you begin just by describing where you're living and calling from now and what it's like there? Yes, I am calling from Karachi, Pakistan, which is my hometown. I was born here. I've lived here about 32 years now. No, more than that. I forget how old I am. I've lived here for a very long time. And uh, it is February, so the weather is probably the best it's going to be all year. It was 23 degrees Celsius today with intermittently cloudy skies and very fresh and very pleasant. That sounds sounds lovely. It's a pure winter here in New England, so that sounds much better. I have Um, lived in New England for six years, so I do know what pure winter over there looks like. (laughs) It's pretty white right now, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would love to start off with a reading from your story. Do do you have it handy? I have it right in front of me. Great. Would you read the first uh, maybe three paragraphs for us? Sure, I will. Weeds and Flowers. Shazmina's best friend, Gul Noor, died on a Monday, pinned down under the wheels of a speeding bus on the long road that stretched all the way down to the beach. Or maybe it happened on a Tuesday or a Saturday. Shazmina was never sure about the names for the days of the week. Monday, Thursday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Saturday melted, one into the other, like the trickles of oily water the buses left in their wake. Shazmina, who hated getting her feet wet in those streams, knew the difference between a weekday and a Sunday, and that Friday was the most important day of the week because of the crowds in front of the mosque in the middle of the day. On Fridays, Shazmina didn't even have to smile too much or toss her hair to get the coins and notes that she had to work so hard for on a Monday or a Thursday. Shazmina was envious of Gulnur, whose hair was blonde. She always attracted more attention no matter what day of the week it was. But they were best friends, so Gulnur always shared the food people gave, packets of biscuits, sweets, half-eaten apples, and chocolate bars. Thanks for reading that. For our listeners who may not have read your story yet, would you describe what the piece is about just in in sort of general terms? It's a short story that takes place on a street in Karachi, and it is about the lives of two little girls who live on the streets. And they're both uh, Afghan refugees or the children of Afghan refugees who crossed over into Pakistan during the Afghan war and just settled in Pakistan. And they came to Karachi, and we have had millions of them 
Some went back after the war was over, but most have stayed. So this short story describes the life of these two little girls who were born on the street, who live on the street, and as the story shows, will die on the street. Thanks. Uh, I'd love to hear how you came to write this story. What inspired you to start work on it? What was the what was the process like? So the story was inspired by me being at a mall one day in Karachi, and I came out, and there was a little girl selling flowers, and she was uh, like the characters in my story, a little Afghan girl. But I noticed that she was wearing boys' clothes, and her hair was cut close like a boy. And I just she was selling these individually wrapped roses and smiling so charmingly. And she just went straight to my heart. I couldn't forget her, even though, even after I came home. And from there, the story was born, just the sight of this girl and me thinking about what her life must be like. And the sight of her feet in her sandals, dusty and dirty. And just, that was her life. That was her life, morning to evening, on the street, day after day. I couldn't imagine it, so I wrote. Wow, that's that's a beautiful visual. Yeah, I can see how, how that would be really inspiring. Uh, as you know, the common publishes writing with a modern sense of place, and, and setting certainly plays a huge role in this story. Could you tell us about writing this side of Karachi? Did you have to like re-envision the city from Shazmina's point of view? I have written a novel in the past called Slum Child, which was also about another little girl growing up in a slum not on the street. There's a difference. You know, slums are quite well constructed and they have their own sense of community and quite a lot happens in, in these neighborhoods. But writing from the point of view of a child, a street child, that was a little bit different. So I did have to rethink what my assumptions were about how these children live and uh, what their attitude towards life is from their point of view, uh, not just mentally, but also physically. You know, they're very small, these children. They don't come up to even the, the windows of your car. So what are they seeing all day? Just the wheels of cars and buses. And they play. They play with each other when they're not begging or when they're not trying to sell things. They're playing with each other. They're running back and forth to their mothers who are often sitting on the, on the, on the sidewalks. And they're doing what kids do. So it's just, it's, it's such a paradox. That was the, that spot that I was trying to get into when I was writing this story. Yeah, that actually fits perfectly with my next question. Um, I, I've definitely found that the, that the story has these really sweet moments in it, like kind of like you described, like they're still children, really. And I, I think the, the meet-cute we see between Gulnor and Shazmina when they share a pair of shoes between them, you know, one wears the left shoe, one wears the right shoe, is just a great example of that. And they get into plenty of mischief on the streets, and it sounds like they're, they're sometimes having a good time. How did you decide on... on including those elements of warmth and lightness within what is otherwise kind of a dark, the dark tone of the story. Because children are children and children will make games out of anything. That's what they do. And I have to say that the idea of the shoes that the two of them share, that's something that uh, was inspired by a, an Iranian movie that my mother watched once uh, where the brother and sister are so poor that they only have one pair of shoes between them. So the brother wears the shoes to go to school in the morning and the sister wears the shoes to go to school in the afternoon. So I sort of thought about that, that idea of being so poor that you only have one pair of shoes between you. And I thought, well, how can I make that even more graphic? And I thought, what if there are two little girls and they want to share the same pair of shoes 
at the same time to show that they're friends. So that's, I, I wanted to concentrate on this uh, window into their world while being real about the difficulty that their life really is, because I'm, I'm not trying to gloss over anything. I'm just showing what is. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was wondering, you know, the moments that they get into on the street, um, you know, there's a, a, a monkey who steals a man's hat and then, you know, they're, they're being playful on the streets. Like, are these things that you've seen or did you just have to kind of imagine what you thought kids on the street would get up to? No, no. I, I watch these children, you know, I watch them when I, when I'm on the street, when I go in a car on the streets, these children are everywhere. They're ubiquitous. And so are the men with the monkeys. And so, so is everything. You know, you just have to be observant and watch. That's wonderful. That's probably why the story feels so so realistic and, and lived in and transporting, because it's all really there. There's there's a moment in the story when Shazmina's older brother gets in a fight with a rival gang of boys, and it highlights a distinction between the newly arrived refugees and the, the generation like Shazmina and her brother, who were born in Karachi to refugee parents. Can you talk more about including that section in the story? It really made me think about the complexities within this refugee community on the streets and, and how it really is a, lar- a large community. Well, I wanted to highlight, as you say, sort of the tension between the refugees that are there first and then the, the next waves of refugees that keep coming because a lot of the refugees are, the later refugees are economic refugees, not always refugees displaced by war, but those that are coming from other parts of Pakistan to Karachi, which is the most affluent and and wealthy city in the country. So a lot of the refugees don't find, they they don't make it somewhere, so they come here. And there's just so much money and there's so much wealth and there's so much charity. So I wanted to highlight the tensions between these waves of refugees to show that even refugees who are the ultimate outsiders, they also then have to distinguish themselves between, you know, the ones who have been here before and the one the, the 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 new arrivals to say now you're the outsiders we are not is is that something that you uh, are you're you're understanding and assuming that that is happening within the community or have have you seen it like is it is it possible to kind of witness that oh but that always happens every year more and more people come to Karachi from all <laughs> parts of Pakistan not just Afghan refugees. But people from, you know, Punjab, for example, southern Punjab, and sometimes the migration is seasonal. They'll come during Ramzan, you know, the month of fasting, in which the most charity is given, and then they go Mm -hmm. back after the month is over. So we always see these waves and these patterns. Or after a natural disaster, such as the super floods that we had in, uh, in Sindh, in the upper part of the province where Karachi is located, people came at that time because their, their houses had been wiped out. Yeah, and it's, it certainly makes sense that there would be tension in, in the, especially in those situations when, mm-hmm. when the population mm-hmm. swells. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, especially because there's, you know, there's only so much charity to go around. There's only so many resources that that to go around. So there's always a fight, I think, between new refugees and old for, for those resources and for that charity. There's so much violence in this story, and some of it is domestic within Shazmina's family, but but most of it seems to just be like the regular everyday condition of, of the streets. And I was particularly struck by the moment when the bus driver who is beaten up after he, he runs over Gulnor, uh, like the fact that, that just members of the public are beating him up, even though it wasn't necessarily his fault that she ran in front of the bus. 
um, if it, it feels like violence is like the natural reaction to almost any situation in in this world that you've written, is is that true in the story and true in real life? Just in that setting, that is um, pretty much the condition of the city. The city is a very tense place. It's a very stressful place to live. It is not one of the world's friendliest cities. And uh, I think that people are so stressed out and people are so jittery almost all the time here that, yeah, they just they have these very emotional reactions. And there's also a sort of a, a, a very slow response from law enforcement. And there's barely any you know emergency services, for example. There wouldn't be an ambulance racing to to get to the girl. So the people sort of take it into their own hands to react when something like this happens. Yeah, it really creates this this atmosphere of, of sort of like impending threat all the time because it's, uh, you know, in some stories, the threat might be arriving externally or it might be out of scene. But it, in this story, it's, it's, it's always possible in every scene, I think. Well, I think that's how I've written the story. But, you know, there are plenty of people who live here who will be oblivious to that or they'll just say, oh, no, it's very safe. Everything is fine here. It, it really... I could have written the story that way too. I, I chose, that was a deliberate choice on my part to, to write the story with, with menace all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it feels, feels fitting for the setting. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned your, your 2010 novel slum child. And, and I did notice that it seems to have some similarities with the story and that the main characters are both poor girls who are actually very re- resilient as well. Um, and living in Karachi. Um, can you talk about what, what it was like to revisit those themes and, and if any you know if anything in your perspective has changed over the years since 2010? It was very different to write these characters than the, than the characters that I wrote about in Slum Child because I think in 2010, I wrote that novel thinking that there would be more change, there would be more advancement. And when I wrote this story in 2019, was it, I guess now? 2018, 2019. I've been yeah, working probably, on that. Yeah. I, I worked on that story for a very long time. <laughs> you know, it just nothing. Things didn't seem to have changed. They seem to have deteriorated in a way. There seem to be more street children and more people who are economically disaffected, and and that was a little bit of a disappointment for me to realize that the disparity between the rich and the poor has has not sort of diminished in any way. If anything, it's gotten bigger. Uh, the, there was a difference, though, in that Slum Child is about a Christian girl. And it, so, again, I guess an outsider to mainstream Pakistani society. But these two little girls, religion doesn't have anything to do with the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I am fascinated by the idea of your your 2018 novel, Before She Sleeps, which sounds like sort of, sort of a modern answer to the, the Handmaid's Tale in a lot of ways. Would you Would you just tell our listeners a little bit about it? Uh, uh, Before She Sleeps is a feminist dystopia in the wave of feminist dystopias that sort of came along 2017, 2018, around the time that The Handmaid's Tale was uh, being aired on Hulu. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is different from most of those other novels in that it takes place in the Middle East 70 or 80 years in the future. So its setting is, is, is very different from the average Western-focused, Western-based dystopia, which looks at um, Western women losing freedoms that they've already that have already been well established, and I'm looking at sort of Middle Eastern and South Asian women for whom life and their freedoms and equalities have never been totally, totally established, which makes them all the more 
fragile, I think, and creates more tension in, in this novel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it sounds like in, in the novel that, that um, women are scarce. Is that accurate? Yes. There, there have been a number of events, without giving too much away, uh, that have reduced the number of women to men. The ratio is really, really off. So maybe one woman for 20 men. Wow. Okay. Nightmare scenario. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I should. I shouldn't laugh. That sounds awful. Um, it's nervous sounds, laughter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, that was certainly my feeling. Yeah, with the Handmaid's Tale as well. Like, um, it always just feels like we want it. We we call it a feminist dystopia because we hope it's like far away and distant and not possible. But you know, you you hope that it's not too close to home. Margaret Atwood famously said that everything she wrote about in The Handmaid's Tale was happening somewhere in the world already. And that's also true of my novel. Yeah, absolutely. Like it doesn't actually take a huge leap of faith. And I think sometimes I think as readers, we just like to pretend there is a huge leap of faith there because it makes us feel a little more comfortable in, in reading it as sort of a fantasy dystopia. No, I took, advantage, than- I took advantage of the fact that uh, Western readers just don't know very much about what's happening in the rest of the world. Yes, that's absolutely true. So you're an activist for women's rights and female empowerment. What's that intersection between your writing and your activism? Does your activism shape what and how you write? Uh, So my activism, if you can call it that, really consists of me being very loud and obnoxious on Twitter most of the time (laughs) and taking up subjects and writing about them perhaps before other women and other people, other activists and feminists were writing about these subjects. So I was a little bit ahead of the curve. Uh, And then when I go to the writing, I'm sometimes looking at the same subjects, but trying to discuss them in an artistic way or in a literary way. So it's not so much as an intersection as me trying to keep the two things quite separate, actually, in my work, because I don't want my journalism or or my essay writing or my, my polemic to be mistaken for my fiction or the other way around. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you is 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 there a hard transition between writing that sort of like factual journalistic writing and and writing fiction? Do you have to you know really treat those things entirely different when you approach them? Very much so. Very much so. With with the fiction, I mean that's that's more backbreaking than the, than the journalism. Actually, mm-hmm. journalism is easy because it's fact based. It's you know you just you you say something, you assert something, you have some sources to support it. You make an argument, you tie up the argument, you're done. Fiction is so open-ended. You're never really done when you're writing it. Yeah, I have a sister who's a journalist, and I I find myself sometimes jealous of uh, the way she just has to sort of follow the facts. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in like a positive way where it's like it's part of the hunt and that it's pulling together the things that you found as opposed to fiction, which can sometimes feel like pulling things right out of the air. <laughs> well, they're two different disciplines, really. Yeah. They're two different. They they require a sort of shift in gears mentally. I wonder, you know, like I write, I'm writing something historical right now. And so I often find I get lost in the research. Do you find like an urge to research when you're writing fiction or do you really like avoid that at all costs? No, no, no. I have to research. I have to do a lot of research before I'm even ready to write. Long fiction, short stories. It's a bit easier. It's usually something that's already floating around in my head. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Uh, so I just have uh, one last question, which is, what are you working on now, and what's next from you? 
I'm working on the sequel to Before She Sleeps and it's breaking awesome. my back. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard though. And I had to do a lot of research for it. And I'm right now sort of getting ready to finish a first draft. So it'll be a couple more years, I think, before it really goes anywhere. That's that's great to hear though. I, I'm excited to, to see that. Um, we'll definitely put put a link in the in the podcast notes for for people to find your book um, and your work. Uh, and I am so glad that you have joined us here today. Um, it's been great with, to talk with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Listeners, you can read Bina's story, Weeds and Flowers, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.